wow, what? I thought at one point, you know. At one point, what? Things would get better. Yeah, me too. Your eyes. I didn't get a lot of sleep last night. Your hair. It's humid out. Lack of sleep and humidity doesn't explain your fashion choice. I thought it would be flattering. It's not. Well, the magazine said that dark colors- The magazine colors doesn't talk about girls like you. I know. Do you? I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Then why do you try so hard? What do you mean? I mean, your new hairdo, your new clothes. You even put on makeup. I thought it might help. It doesn't. I thought this year would be different. A new school doesn't change the fact- What? The fact that you still look like you. You'll always look like you. But I, I want to look like me. No, you don't. Believe me. I look at you every day. No one wants to look the way you do. I just want to look like a prettier version of me. No, you don't. Linda? What are you doing in here? Um, I'm just fixing my makeup. You look great. Thanks. Really? The new outfit, the hair? You look great. Maybe like I'm trying too hard? Who told you that? She's not real, you know. You really do look nice. We're gonna be late. I'll meet you outside in just a sec. This year will be different. How? This year, you don't get to define me. I will always define you. My God defines me. You're just a piece of glass. It was a crazy road. This isn't what I wanted to do um, growing up. Like I wanted to be a lawyer and make tons of money and argue with people. And it just didn't work out that way. God had a different plan for me. And slowly, everything started falling into place. I am a second grade teacher. I've been teaching for 13 years. It was just the path that God took me on. Um, I went from working at the district attorney's office to working with juveniles in the, in the system. And then I went to an after school program. And then from that, people kept telling me, you should teach, you should teach. And being around kids and watching kids experience um, learning and being excited about learning and just being excited about life made me want to go into teaching. I didn't know if I was doing the best job that I could do, even though people were telling me I was doing a great job. But I think even so, I knew that this was what I was supposed to do. I literally had to stop focusing on what I was and why I was that. One of my prayers in the morning, um, when I ask God what his plan is for me, I always throw in there, who am I supposed to bless today? 
who am I to put that person, you know, in front of me? And it's, it's all my kids. It is literally all my kids. Um, watching them smile, seeing them be excited about learning, seeing them happy to see me and I'm happy to see them and just being a part of their journey of learning and growing. Like, that's my affirmation every single day. Excited that you're here. Uh, my name is Danny, and I'm going to be sharing with you today. I'm one of the pastors here at Kesson. And uh, we're wrapping up our Visible series uh, with a fairly simple concept that I wanted to use two illustrations to really set up. And one was the drama that I'm going to talk about, and the other one was the video. Uh, before we do that, though, I'm going to uh, make a quick and, uh, and honest confession with you about how excited I am that the rain's here. Uh, I know not all of you are as excited as I am, and so for those of you that are all about the sun, um, I'm so sorry. I just, I feel what you're feeling, I recognize your pain, and I'm moving forward. So I just wanted to, to recognize that. So let me pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive right in. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for just this opportunity to share and talk about you. Thank you for every person here. I know, Lord, that um, you are going to use today's service to impact people's lives in a powerful way. Thank you for these two illustrations that you've given us to start this talk with. May they just be embedded in our minds as we think about uh, some, some not-so-easy things to think about. Thank you, Lord, that we are visible to you and that you are so willing to be visible and present in our lives. Please make yourself known as we quiet ourselves before you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There's two basic principles that I want to bring forward today uh, to wrap up this series, because the idea behind the whole series, and especially today, has been that God has designed you to be in a community, known by a community, and known by God. That God has designed us to be visible. That although as a church, we oftentimes talk together about these invisible people over here we're going to serve, or or these invisible people over here we're going to go help. Oftentimes, the focus becomes all about these other things we're doing outside this room when Scripture is very clear that we as a community are supposed to be taking care of one another, and we are supposed to not just be worried only about taking care of one another or people outside, but also taking care of ourselves. You're going to experience a lot of emotional health talk coming from me over the next uh, few years. As a matter of fact, uh, I will share in this service, and I'm going to do a whole series on it, I think. But about a year ago or so, I put myself in once a week, basically full-time therapy because of my desire to make sure that no matter how crazy, good, bad, or ugly Kesed gets, I still want to be a whole person, and I still want to be the husband and the father and the, and the pastor and the preacher I'm supposed to be. And so I put myself... In, uh, in therapy about a year ago. And what's really amazing is I've kind of been leaking that out to people. Like, well, I was talking with my therapist. And every time they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You go see a therapist? Like, I listen to a guy who has to go see a guy? <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah, man, because I care about my inside self and my compartmentalized self. And frankly, I'm kind of sick of the stigma. I mean, people go to church to learn from a guy who reads books and studies and, and hear, I hope hears from the Lord. Why wouldn't I want to go to a guy who's also faith-based, who reads books and studies and can say, Danny, have you ever considered maybe you do that or do this or do that because of that? And also, I need a place to share some of the crazy stuff you guys, you know, do to me. I don't know why. 
Who am I supposed to share that with, right? And so, uh, and so this talk is just a little bit of a prelude into a whole season of emotional health that I think our church is going to enjoy. And I think it couldn't be better well-timed because there is so much happening in our community. Uh, Pastor Tom's going to be back next week on this stage to give you guys a big downtown announcement, let you know what's going on, give you guys some updates. And uh, it's just been beautiful down there and a, a really a really special, special season of ministry that I want us, our hearts, our eyes for each other, and our eyes for the outside community to be as prepared for as we possibly can. Amen? Amen. Amen. Okay, so let's start with this question. If one day you could look back over your life, what would you say will have been the most defining moments of your story? One day, if you could look back over the whole of your life, the whole thing, you're just, you're just a few hours from the end. What would you say, just in your thinking right now, will be some of the most defining moments in your story? Now, of course, that's really hard to do because m many of us, most of us, aren't anywhere near the end of our lives. And so we're like, well, I don't know. So then you could rephrase the question. Okay, well, up till now, can you look back in your life and start to think about some of the most defining moments in your story? I know this. I know that as a freshman in high school, like this drama sort of portrayed, as I was going back into school, I had a very similar talk with myself in a mirror. I remember being too skinny, too small, too short. My eyes were too big, right? My smile was too wide, and I could not keep my mouth shut, right? I just, I just talked and talked. It didn't matter what I said. It didn't matter what I said to myself. I just, that was my go-to thing was I'll just I'll just talk you into being my friend or leaving me alone. That's my strategy, right? I, I don't have anything else. That's all I got. And I remember feeling um, like I was going to have to become a different person if I was going to survive high school. I hated high school. I just hated high school. Uh, I did not have a good time in high school. As a matter of fact, my parents ended up going through a divorce at, at right in the middle of it. I ended up leaving to go to work full time and had to do correspondence school. And that whole four years for me was just one big trial. And I know for me was a defining moment in my life. I know it was. Now, I don't know yours, but I know that for many of us, the trials, when we start thinking of defining moments, and that's not the only ones we're going to talk about, but the trials seem to come up first. They seem to be the ones that get brought to the surface first. Those things that happen to us, those those, uh, those traumas, those things that, that brought us anxiety. For me, high school caused me anxiety. It's just what it was. And then everything else that happened around it. I relate clearly to this illustration here of trial. And who am I going to be and how am I going to feel? And what, are the world, what is the world going to say about me? And how am I going to survive this? Trials oftentimes in scripture are used to change our lives. Now I asked the question, if you could look back over your life, what would be one of the most defining moments? Well, the question's a little bit of a setup to scripture. Because one of the reasons we study scripture like we do is because so often scripture is just that. The script of a person's life from beginning to end that is highlighted by defining human moments, whether they be trials, which is what we're going to talk about now, or what we're going to talk about in just a moment, which is treasures. Because some of you, when you thought about defining moments, you just glow. I saw you. And you're like, oh, I'll tell you what happened when I met my husband. Unbelievable. Changed my life. When we had our first child, right? Or second. I don't know why people always say first, right? As if the second one was like, you just went in, had it, and went back to work. You know, <laughs> when we had our children, okay, when we bought our first home, when we did this thing, there are, there's this whole other aspect that we're going to sit in 
that, that are well-defined, these moments that are treasure. But really, most of the time, most of our defining moments sit inside these two illustrations. Trial, like the drama, or treasure, like Kim, who was on her way to be something that she decided because she was built for something else was more valuable to her. See, that's the two illustrations, and that's the platform that I'm hoping your minds come from and launch from as we talk about this. So let's look at a person's life, because that's what Scripture allows us to do, a very famous person, and let's look at what many scholars say is the most defining moment about each of these people's lives. And I decided to take very well-known characters, because that way, when you think you know the moments, because I think most of us thought we did, and then you ask people who read books and study this kind of stuff and who are much smarter than me, really, when did these moments, when did these people become like Kim, who they were supposed to be? The moments were completely different than I thought. The first one is a man by the name of Moses. Moses was raised by people not his own. He was a Hebrew slave that got floated down a river and was picked up by an Egyptian princess. He was raised for 40 years inside the Egyptian culture. He was educated, he was chiseled, he was taught, his mind, his body, everything about him was Egyptian except his heart. Moses goes walking through uh, a part of Egypt and he sees the Hebrews and how they're being treated and suddenly his inner person begins to split. The duplicity of how he feels versus what he knows becomes different and he can't live this way. And this treasure of Egypt becomes a deep trial in his life. And suddenly he finds himself in a situation that begins to split him in two. Let's read it. Exodus chapter 2, verses 11, starting. One day when Moses had grown up, he was 40 years old, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating the Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, sure enough, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well." Can you go back uh, one slide to uh, uh, verse 12 for me? Because I always thought this was an interesting thing. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is Danny theology, okay? This is, this is a no textbook or anything else. This is just me pondering with you something I read in Scripture. Moses looked this way and that as he sees this Egyptian hurting this Hebrew. And he, seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Um, the emphasis is supposed to be that he killed him. But based on the next couple verses, if you want to skip forward, when people suddenly find out, I kind of wonder if Mr. Egyptian woke up underneath there like, <gasps> and then that's why he told everybody. Because he actually wasn't dead. Now, we, don't, we know that's not true, but I've always questioned exactly what Moses thought was true versus what Pharaoh made him believe to be true. Because he looked and saw no one, and then struck the man down and buried him in the sand. It doesn't say he was dead. It just says he was buried. Which is not good. Either way, it's not good. I mean, we're probably splitting hairs here. I mean, Moses wasn't like, he's not dead. He was breathing. I just filled his mouth with sand, but it was still breathing. But I don't, I don't think that that matters. But I do think it's an interesting thing. Now, as we read this story, immediately most of us are going to go to, okay. You're going to try to, be a, you're gonna, you're gonna try to do what I did when I read the text. I get it. I get why the scholar that I stole this from brought me to this text as the most defining moment in Moses' life because he snapped and he decided, I'm going to be Hebrew forever, Hebrew only, right? And he became that man, and the scholar's like, absolutely not. 
As a matter of fact, the murder is not even the moment. The moment is at the very end of the verse. Go ahead. Next slide. It's these words right here. And he sat down by a well. The most defining moments in Moses' life are when Moses stopped being Egyptian, stopped being Hebrew, apparently, and went to being no one. He escaped into Midian. He had nowhere to go, and he stopped. And he sat at a well, and he pondered his 40 years of life. And into this picture, it says, came two groups of people. And these groups both represent a choice. Let's read what happens next. Now the priest of Midian, where Moses was sitting at the well, had seven daughters. And they came and drew water filled and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. Then, verse 17, the shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. Now, if you just blow through verses and you don't sit in your mind and see these things, then you lose all the color, you lose all the dimension, and frankly, you lose all the purpose behind this tiny little passage. You have Moses sitting at a well, having left Egypt, having left uh, the only nation he, he thought he was going to be a part of, which is the, the Hebrew nation, God's nation. And now he's at a well and comes two groups. One group is a group in need, and one group is a group of violence. One is a marauding group of shepherds that are taking whatever they want, including even potentially the sheep and the women themselves. The others are a group of women who are working hard to, to take care of what's been given to them. And Moses has a decision to make. Like everybody going through trials has a decision to make. Am I going to take the easy road? Because I'm smarter than these men. I know I am. I'm, I'm, I'm apparently stronger than these men because it says there's multiple versions of them. Matter of fact, I could be the leader of these men. Or I could defend these women and get nothing for it. This is the right thing. This is the wrong thing. This would probably make me feel better. Safer secure, stable. I'd immediately be a part of a gang. This is why people join gangs, because who wants to be alone in a foreign land? Or I could defend these women. Moses decides he's going to be a defender. Moses decides from his place of contemplation, he's going to make a difference. And so he stands up and apparently uses incredible ninja-like Egyptian skills to defend these shepherds who definitely had staffs, by the way, because they're shepherds. We've all have seen the nativities at home. So that's a date. Imagine the full fight, right? Very Matrix style. Moses, you know, defending shepherd staffs, swinging for his head, right? Women huddling in their sheep, right? And then Moses at the end, long dewy locks, looking at these women and saying, be saved. And you think that part's wrong, but that part might not be wrong because later on, those women brought Moses home to Jethro and then he married one of them. How'd that... How'd you like that to be your courtship story? Like, honey, remember that time I saved you? Remember that time I fought off all those men? Remember that time? Every time my wife would bring me a glass of water, I'd be like, remember that time you were thirsty? Remember that time I saved your life? Right? This, this is a defining, defining moment <laughs> in Moses' life. A.W. Tozer said, every person should see to it that he is fully cleansed from all sin, entirely surrendered to the whole will of God, and filled with the, whole spirit, the Holy Spirit, I love this phrase, then he will not be known as what he does, but as what he is. He will be a man of God first and anything else second. Moses was choosing 
to do the right thing, even in the midst of having made poor choices, even in the midst of great trial, even in the midst of looking in the mirror and not liking what you see and feeling the pressure of this world's condemnation upon you, you have a choice. Become part of the bullying, become part of the, of the scene, become part of whatever it is that culture says is acceptable. The stronger oppress the weaker and the, the smarter oppress the, 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 the ignorant and, you know, and, and whatever it is that you think you got to be a part of to survive, I'm just here to tell you not according to God's economy. Economy. For you are visible before God inside your trials, just as you are inside the moments of great treasure. And Moses chose to do the right thing. Hebrews 12, 11 says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Stop avoiding your trials. Stop. You don't know. Your trials could be the greatest thing about your life. Your trials certainly could be a great blessing in your life at the, minute, at the least. I told you that as a child, I talked a lot. You may not have realized that that, that, that was honest, but it was. That gift, that thing that I do now, uh, that God, I am immensely blessed to be able to use for his glory and his will is also an incredible trial of mine. It's been really hard in our marriage because I don't argue fair, right? I preach when I get mad. This is not fair, not good, not a good thing. Um, as a matter of fact, if I was being authentic about really recognizing, I'm doing this now in reverse, but I think it works. You're experiencing, I hope, the positive side of the gift. Uh, unfortunately, about three days ago, another young lady experienced the negative side of the gift as the very first day all the rain came, I went to Starbucks and ordered pumpkin spice lattes for everyone at our office. The lady through the speaker, who sounded quite young, said, I'm sorry, sir, we're out of pumpkin spice lattes. And my immediate response was impossible. <laughs> as I say it now, I, I, I said impossible. And she was quiet. And she, I, she said, no. And I said, there's no way you guys didn't know this rain was coming. It's been coming for a week. Everyone's going to be ordering pumpkin spice lattes today. And she goes, everyone did order pumpkin spice lattes today. <laughs> and I said, but, but it's like 2 o'clock. And she goes, sir, I don't, I don't have pumpkin spice lattes. So I'm frustrated. So I got on my speakerphone, and I called the office and asked Alyssa loudly, hey, they're out of pumpkin spice lattes. And Alyssa loudly, while the lady who can, by the way, Starbucks can see you on a camera. I don't know if you know that or not. And also hear you. I'm like, I don't know. They're out of pumpkin spice lattes. And she's like, are you serious? Like loud. And I was like... I don't know, Alyssa, and I'm looking at the camera like, I don't know, I don't know. And she's like, I don't even, that's why we went there. And I was like, I know, I know, right? I mean, I am really laying it on thick at this point. I'm halfway smiling, but I'm also a little bit frustrated. So Alyssa's like, I don't know, what do you guys want? So we lock the whole line up, finally get up there, and she's this super sweet, like probably 19-year-old girl, and she leans forward, and she's like, listen, I am so sorry we're out of pumpkin spice lattes. And I was like, it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. I said, and I tried to use my gift. I said, listen, we all make huge mistakes in our lives. <laughs> Don't ever let it happen again. And we laughed, right? And she gave me the drinks. Well, this, this, this is where you really, this is when God just says, Danny, just, just shut your mouth every once in a while. Three days later, okay, my wife, who was with me, by the way, for that whole exchange, says, hey, we should go to Starbucks and I want a pumpkin spice latte. And I said, you think they'll have them? 
And she's like, I, I don't know, let's go to a different one. So we go to a Starbucks on the clear the other side of town. One side is Salmon Creek, that's where they were at. Now we're in Battleground. I pull up to Battleground and I say, do you have pumpkin spice lattes? And this girl with a very similar voice says, yes, we do. I said, awesome, we'll take those. Drive up to the window and literally standing in Battleground Starbucks is the same girl. <laughs> so I thought. So I look at her and she hands me the drinks and I said, because I, I was in a different car. She didn't act like she knew me. And I said, um, did you know that the Salmon Creek store was out of pumpkin spice lattes? And she goes, which one, the drive through one or the other one? And I said, no, the drive through one. And she goes, oh, man, that must have been so hard. My twin sister works there. She only started three days ago. <laughs> I said, I'm the guy that was frustrated with the pumpkin spice lattes. And she goes, mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Your treasure can be your trial, and your trial can be your treasure. So, so be aware that whatever you have in your life that you're wrestling with God, God can use that. God can work that to do beautiful things, or if you're not careful, to do damaging things, to do uh, things that, that, aren't, uh, that don't work in everyday life. And so many of us in this room, you use this skill set in the wrong way, and suddenly it becomes a damaging thing. Moses could have easily used his strength and power to run off the women and lead the band of marauding shepherds, but instead he uses that same strength and power to run off the marauding shepherds and actually end up embracing a whole family that needed a protector and a man like him. Lean into your trials, don't run from them. Be willing to look in that mirror and say, as the drama said, you're just a piece of glass. Walk out in front of God, be visible, be seen, and stop pretending like you don't have weaknesses just because people think those weaknesses are your strengths. Okay, treasure. Because I'm coming after some of you right now because some of you are like, yeah, I get it. I'm not really dealing with anything bad right now. Like my whole life is golden and flowery. All right, well... Let's look at David. There was a season in David's life after he experienced much, much, much trial that, that he experienced more treasure than anyone that I've ever met or anyone that I've ever known. At this point in David's life, he has conquered all the surrounding kingdoms. Either he's conquered them with war or he's married their daughters, right? And I don't know if you realize that, but much of David's peace was made by marrying princesses. Like, what a strategy. Like, we could kill a bunch of people or I could just marry your beautiful daughter. I'll take the daughter, right? So he ends up with this huge harem and this peaceful uh, uh, area all around his kingdom where there's really nothing more for him to do but ponder, what am I going to do as a king now? And so he starts thinking, I live in this palace. I have all this wealth. I have all this prestige. I have all this great thing, uh, things that I've been doing. You know what I think I'll do? I think what I'll do is I'll build God a palace. And so he goes before his pastor, before his prophet Nathan, and that's exactly what he says. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now at this point, David is most likely functioning from a cultural standpoint versus a uh, a spiritual standpoint. David recognizes that, that his nation needs to be established, and he recognizes that one of the things that establishes your nation is your belief system and how you function in that system. All the surrounding pagan nations would have had palaces and temples, and David wants to play. He wants to be a part. He wants to honor God. Let's be clear. 
He's a man after God's own heart. But he also wants to do the next thing you're supposed to do when you have treasure, which is manage it. Right? You get treasure, you got to manage it. All right, look at all this stuff we've got. Look at all these kids we've got. Look at this amazing wife I've got. All right, here's what we're going to do to take you to a new level. Anybody ever had that conversation with your wife? It's not a good one. Right? <laughs> here's what we got to do to take our family to a next place. Here's what we got to do. Now we've got this house that we can afford. Man, I bet we could even stretch a little further, get something more. You got to manage your treasure. David wants to manage his treasure. And so he goes to his spiritual advisor and he says, I want to manage my treasure. I want to build a temple. And the advisor is like, yes, temple time. I'm so excited. And immediately says, do it. This is why I tell you over and over and over again, you better buy into the book and not the man because men are often wrong. This is a clear point where the pastor and the prophet of God was wrong because he's a pastor. If you walked up to any pastor and said, I feel led by the Lord to pay cash for a giant church building, all the remodeling that you want, you think I'm going to be like, why don't you go home and pray about that for a few days? Spend time with the Lord. Let me know. I'll go pray about it. No, I'm going to be like, boom, here's our PayPal machine, right? <laughs> I mean, I mean, it would just be, it would be, it's a, it's a no brainer. And that's exactly what happens here. But then God shows up like he does when we're full of treasure. Verse four, but the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Now, before I read these, I'd like as many of you as you'd like to count how many times God uses the word I to remind Nathan and so David and so us of who's really in charge of when we are going through and having times of treasure. Now, I don't know that there's such a thing as a God rant, but if there was, these next uh, 12 verses would be it. This is when God just goes, hey, do you think you're important? You think that because all these things are going well for you, that you're the center of the universe? Count how many eyes. But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? You got to read that sarcastically because that's exactly how he asked it. <clears throat> you're going to build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, I love when God says now to other people, not to me. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, Israel. Just a nice little loving fatherly dig to the man who calls himself king. I took you that you could be prince, because there's only one king, and it's Papa, not you, right? There's only one king, and I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you the rest from all your enemies. Moreover, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. <laughs> you want to make me a house? Uh, no, I make the houses. I'm the house maker. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision. You better believe Nathan spoke to David. How many eyes? 19 times God reminds David, you don't build anything. You don't build your life. You don't build your family. You don't build churches. You don't build kingdoms. And you certainly don't build palaces. I do. See, when we start being filled up with treasure is when we start to think we're the treasure bearers, and we're not. God reminds David of this, and you might say this is the most important thing happening in David's life. This is the point in his life when everything changed, and I would say no, not according to the scholars who think better than me that I stole this from. Verse 18 is the most important thing, and one of the deepest, most challenging and uh, transforming things done by King David, and here's what it says. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. He did exactly what Moses did, and he sat down. Because what exactly are you going to say to that? He sat there, and he pondered there, and he wrestled there, and eventually he spoke. And these were his words. Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes. O Lord God, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, this is when David gets it. Therefore, you are great, O God. For there is none like you, and there is no God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth, whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourselves from Egypt, a nation and its gods. David sits before God and is awakened to the reality that like his trials before, it is the treasures that also cause us to recognize and realize that God is wanting to awaken us to his purpose and his place. You see, we oftentimes get caught up in our callings. We get caught up in our dreams and in our vision, but what we don't realize is our callings and our dreams and our visions sometimes require treasure to move forward and sometimes require trials to move forward. And it is not the callings or, the, or, or the, the expression of them that brings holiness to the movement that is what my life is supposed to be about. It is me and my desire to be seen by my God as I am. Like the earlier quote said, to do nothing, to give up deciding to be a lawyer, to go, instead of arguing with adults, I'm just gonna go argue with first graders. Well, that's not nearly as exciting. I don't know. I think she might disagree. It certainly couldn't be as fulfilling. I don't know. I think she might disagree. 
Because Kim's doing what Kim's supposed to do. Are you doing what you're supposed to do? Am I doing what I'm supposed to do? And am I leaning into the treasure in my life and the trials in my life? Am I leaning into the brokenness in my life and the beauty in my life? Or am I hiding the brokenness and hiding the trials and overexposing the treasure and overexposing the beauty? And basically, I'm just trying to pretend with everybody in this room that I got it together when I don't. I preach bad things to girls at Starbucks when they don't give me six-ounce drinks that I want. And then I get to preach on stage, I hope filled with the Holy Spirit, and share words that I believe bring salvation and life through God's power and God alone. How does that live in this? How, how is that possible? Because I am a broken and beautiful mess, just like you. And God sees every ounce of it. And I am visible. And I am working on it. And I am confessing it. And I must ask for forgiveness more from my wife in the last year than I have in the previous 17 we've been married. Because through my, my therapy, through my story, through this church, through all the blessings, through everything that's happening, God is awakening more and more stuff I got to work on if I want to be a part of what he's doing. Because God is not interested in bringing people to places just to watch them wallow in their own brokenness. God wants to bring people out of their brokenness and out of their beauty and into him and his wholeness and his completeness and his story. Because he would like to remind you what he reminded David and Nathan, I God, I am the one that brought you here. I am the one that led you here. I am the one that speaks to you right now. I am the one convicting you about the stuff you know you've got to stop doing. I am the one convicting you about the stuff you know you've got to give away. I am the one that brings the treasure, and I am the one that brings the trials. And I am the one that will make you better through both. Amen. I built this sermon in my office that I now moved into officially at the downtown building. Okay, this whole sermon, right? Yep, okay. That was a beautiful thing, right? I haven't had an office uh, uh, since we planted Kessa that was our own. We had one at the ministry center that we rented and leased, but not that was our own. And as I was building this sermon, thinking about trials and treasures, all of this stuff kind of flooded back to me. I want to share it with you. When Aaron and I planted this church, uh, along with another group of people that, that were here, some st aren't here now, some are, uh, we planted this church actually eight years ago next Sunday. Next Sunday is our anniversary celebration for eight years at Kesson. When we planted this church, we had been at the previous church for 10 years, okay? And actually today, October 1st, is my uh, 18th anniversary, Aaron and I's 18th anniversary in full-time vocational ministry today, October 1st, while I preach this talk. Yeah. This week, I was building this message, knowing these dates were coming, the anniversary, the, the celebration, all these different special things. And as I was building it, I started thinking about during the first 10 years that we were at a church called Living Hope, my wife and I, with some people that were here. And it was this incredible season of incredible treasure. I mean, it was blessing after blessing after blessing. I, with that little church that we were a part of grew from nothing to over 6,000 people. I got to travel overseas. I spent a year in New Zealand planning churches. I got to, to go. We had five campuses. We had 65 staff. Uh, I had a youth group for the first portion of my time there that had 1,000 people. This was my staff. You'll recognize some of them because some of them are still here like Savannah, Jared, and so forth. 1,000 uh, people in our youth group. Seven full-time staff. I had more staff of the youth group than I do of our church right now. It was an exciting time. 
Eventually, after coming back from overseas, we became the executive. I became the executive pastor of Living Hope along with another guy, and we oversaw the staff. And I mean, things were just incredible amounts of blessing and beauty and wonder. But I could feel in my heart that God was calling me to something else. And so we transitioned. I, I've told the story. I'm not going to tell it today. But I drove east, right, uh, one day and just kept driving and went and my version of sitting before the Lord. And I felt God wanted me to be a part of this. And so we planted this church eight years ago yesterday, or I'm sorry, next week, and uh, it was basically hell from the beginning. It was difficult. It was ugly. I, my leadership wasn't where I wanted it to be. Uh, my sermons and my, my, my communication wasn't where it wanted it to be. As a matter of fact, I preached my first Easter and never did a salvation message for my first Easter sermon because I was so nervous and I had never preached one as a youth guy. I'd never preached Easter, Mother's Day, Christmas, Christmas Eve, none of those. So I didn't know. Afterwards, they go, great service, but nobody came to Jesus. Don't you want to point them to Jesus on Easter? And I was like, huh. We only had one service, like 80 people. And I was like, well, someone else will get them, right? I just, I didn't, it was broken. It was broken. The church uh, struggled. It struggled, and it grew, and people left, and some of it fairly, right? Because I was all over the place, and eventually, uh, it got to a place where it kind of st got steady and stable, and that's when we started doing these sermons to shrink the church. I don't know if you were here four or five years ago. Every once in a while, we do these sermons about shrinking the church. Hey, we're, we want a church that's as drama-free as it can be. We don't want these, these uh, pools of people trying to, you know, take control and tweak things. And so, listen, if this is who we are, this is what we believe. If this isn't good for you, there's so many great churches in town, so we'd love for you not to come back. And, uh, and it worked. Uh, some people left. And our church got a little uh, cleaner, if you will, but a little smaller. And it kind of stabled out. And then we started asking the question, when's God going to bring us a building? And I started saying, because at this point I was starting to get a little healthier emotionally, God will bring us a building when he wants us to have a building. And part of it was sarcasm. And part of it was me just not wanting to answer the unanswerable, you know. Uh, and then God brought us a building. And with that building came all kinds of other opportunities and blessings. And suddenly, I'm sitting in my office last week, uh, and I'm realizing that we're moving from a season of a, as, of a church, and Aaron and I especially, of trial to treasure. I'm, I'm, we're moving back to this place when we move downtown and all these God's blessing and the kinds of ministry and the things we're going to be able to do. And I realize these wondrous things that God has done in my life over the last eight years, without those, I would be no way prepared for the things I think he's going to do next. I was pondering all this, and we've been talking about it all the time. The team, Aaron, all of us, just like a lot changing, lots happening. And uh, I ended up getting an email. Now, this is not me making up timing for sake of sermon. This is true story. We're in the midst of all this. We're building messages and so forth. I get an email, and it's from the people who lead Rooted in Irvine, California. And I don't know if you realize, but Rooted is uh, the discipleship program we run here. There's a big, long story behind it. You can look at the website if you want. But one thing about Rooted that didn't work for me was... Um, how specific it was to its culture there and how different our culture in the Northwest really is. And so I warped things and rooted, for example, like adding our church's name to their emblem. Now I did it because Root is from California and we're in the Northwest and we all know none of you are getting into the discipleship program from people in California. So, so I put my name on it and, and told people at Rooted I was doing so. And then I started tweaking other things and other things and other things. And suddenly we, this, this program that is beautiful and wonderful, which we didn't change any of the bones, became something that just really worked for our church. And so we sent to California when they asked 
all the things about Rooted that we changed to make it fit our culture a little better. Well, I got an email from her, and <laughs> she said how much they enjoyed all the changes we'd made in Rooted, and I'm, I'm summarizing, but asked if I would be willing to come down and share with 150 other pastors about how to get Rooted connected into their culture in a few weeks. And I said, yeah, I'd be more than willing to do that. And she goes, great, it's in Germany. <laughs> They're bringing Rooted to Germany, Europe, and they are asking, all expenses paid, if I will come with their team to talk with the pastors there that are just amazing and God's doing all kinds of stuff about how Rooted fits inside a culture that's a little different than California and some of these other places. And so I'm, I'm going to Germany in a few weeks. I'm only missing one Sunday. I want to be really clear. Everybody's like, when are you going? Yep, no, I'm only missing one Sunday. Uh, and I'm not going to tell you when it is. So just show up for the whole time. But, uh, but it's really exciting, right? So that happened, okay? And I was living in that, and I was super excited about that, and I was building my message. And I got to that point in the message on Friday night when I was working pretty late. And Julie and Toby showed up with a couple other volunteers from our church, and they decided to start working in the office and doing a few more things that needed hanging, some pictures and some stuff. And I'm just, I mean, I'm just on it now, right? I've got my message. I'm feeling good. It's my, I'm, in, I'm in my own office. How amazing is this? I'm talking about season of treasure and how we've got to be sensitive and remember the stuff from trial and lean into the stuff from treasure and let them both be strength and give them both to God. And suddenly this little girl walks in, Evie. And how old is Evie? Is she eight, seven? Seven. Evie walks in and she says, will you take a picture of me eating this pizza and these cookies? She says this to my wife and send it to my mom. Her mom was four feet away. <laughs> but we did. We did. Evie realizes we're interested in her and her world and so just starts chatting up for two solid hours. Evie doesn't care that I'm sermon prepping at all, right? She just cares that she's in Pastor Danny's office. Pastor, she goes to Pastor Danny's church. She's going to hang out and her parents are helping and she just wants to know what's going on in life and everything else. And eventually, right as my sermon's wrapping up and right as some of the last nails are going in out in the outer office, I look up from my computer and Evie's decided that she's just going to go ahead and take a rest on my couch. <laughs> and that's when it all just kind of came together. This is why we do what we do. Because this little girl's growing up in an office where she can talk to people about Jesus with parents who love her. She's in a home and a place where she belongs. And we get to walk her through, but here's the thing that's so important about her future life that maybe no one ever told you. We're gonna walk with Evie as a church community through all her treasures because they're gonna distract her like they distract you. And also, we're gonna walk as a church family with Evie through all her trials because they're gonna distract her like they distract you. We are supposed to be a family that leans into this stuff. Let it be hard. Let it be ugly. Let it be beautiful. Celebrate with one another. Set aside the stuff that makes this world so broken when it comes together and decide that we're going to build something bigger than ourselves. For God already sees the end of our lives. He already knows the moments. And you know what's so powerful? For some of you, you don't even realize yours is today. Yours is right now. If yours was a book in the Bible, your life, your verse of change, your sitting before the Lord is right now. Whether it be a well because you're going through trial or it be a, 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 a palace because you're going through treasure, your opportunity to sit before God and say, God, through treasure and trial, I want to be your child. I don't want to be distracted by either. I want to love other people and not be distracted by theirs either. 
I want to be in community. I want to engage you. I want to love you. And I want to lift my life so that one day I can recognize I am a prince and I am a princess, but I am not a king or a queen. Only you are. This is what our church is going to be about. And this is why God's going to use it. Because, because we want him to. And he wants to. I wonder if church is really that easy. A bunch of people who want God to use them and a God who wants to be used by them. And we just go, cool, you do your stuff. I'll do my stuff. And we'll dance together. God will bring the music. And he'll build it. All the rest of the stuff's going to get figured out as we go. So what I want to do is I want to give you that moment to sit in that spot. So we're going to pass communion. It's a little different communion as the worship team comes out because it's not just a communion for you to just take. It's a communion for you to really wrestle specifically with this truth. What is it that God wants to use in your life, whether it's trial or treasure? How is it that he's awakening you to things in your world? And how do you need to respond what about your lifestyle? What about your story can be changed from this day on so that when you look out at the end of it all, you say today, that day, that was the day that changed everything for me. So I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna pass communion. We're gonna spend a little time reflecting and then I'm gonna come back up and I'm gonna read the passage and we're gonna take it together as a church family. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord. To you and you alone do we give the glory of this moment. To you and you alone do we proclaim that we just don't know. Lord, we recognize that the story of Jesus on the cross is full of incredible trial and struggle and ugly. And so you relate to those things inside of our lives. But the story is also full of incredible treasure and salvation and grace. And so, Lord, we receive this communion offering we take now, God, to connect our story with your story, to be present with you, to be in relationship with you, to ask you, how do you want us, Lord, to walk? How do you want us to stop? How do you want us to lay down or stand up or fight or pull back? What do you need from us, God? more than just our willingness to raise our empty hands and say, we're yours. God, may you just spiritually flow through this room right now. May you touch hearts, convict hearts, awaken hearts, forgive hearts, heal hearts, move hearts, release hearts, fill up hearts. And may we experience what it feels like to be a people who bring so much glory to your name.